Welcome to the official ABA Law Student Podcast, where we talk about issues that affect law students and recent grads. From finals and graduation to the bar exam and finding a job, this show is your trusted resource for the next big step. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another edition of the ABA Law Student Podcast on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Sandy Gallant-Jones. I am the Seventh Circuit Governor for the ABA's Law Student Division, representing the states of Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. I'm currently a 2L at Northern Illinois University College of Law. And I'm Chris Morgan, Governor of the ABA Law Student Division's 12th Circuit and a 3L at the Gonzaga University School of Law in Spokane, Washington. Our show today is sponsored by the American Bar Association Law Student Division. In this monthly podcast, we cover topics that are of interest to you, law students and recent graduates. We will cover a variety of topics from finals to the bar exam and everything in between. We hope this show is a trusted resource for you, our listeners. For this show, Kelly Lake will join us as we discuss legal technology and the importance of learning how to use it, as well as the need for continued legal learning after law school. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. want to know a little bit about your background. Uh, why don't you tell our listeners what influenced you to choose a career in the legal field? It's interesting that I would even though I studied law at a university in England, I would probably first describe myself as an information and media professional who happens to have spent the bulk of my career building legal technology and information solutions. So, you know, how I started there is I was at law school looking for a job, as you do when sometimes when you're an impoverished student. And this was the mid-90s in the UK. There was a lot of buzz around technology and the Thomson Reuters, which is then West Publishing, and many of your students are probably familiar with Westlaw, was looking to build the first Westlaw outside of the United States. And that was Westlaw UK. Uh, and that was my very first job. And then, so as part of that, I went on, I joined that as a legal editor, creating content for Westlaw UK and classifying the content. And I got completely sucked into the power and the opportunity of the technology. And it was very evident, you know, in that run up to the millennium that technology was going to explode and that it was going to really change at that point in time, I don't know that I had the foresight to see that how much it was going to change the world around us, but it was pretty clear that this was a path to a completely new and changing environment. And that was, as a young person, that was very exciting to me. And I guess that's how it's evolved. And over the years, I've moved through different parts of the media business. Thomson Reuters is a significant media and information business with news and scientific data and financial services data. And I've worked in all different aspects of that, but I guess my roots were in the legal publishing area, and that's where, to some degree, my passion is as well. So you spent a lot of time with Thomson Reuters. Could you tell us a little bit about your time there, kind of what you accomplished and what it was like working with them and for them? Sure. So, you know, as I said before, Thomson Reuters was the start of my career with the UK part of 
the business, which was at that point in time very focused around building Westlaw UK. And that was, I, I would say, probably the first initial three years of my career. And from there, there was this mass explosion of technology, globalization, and the entire geo-economic environment shifted as well. And so I would say legal publishing has been a big part of my life through Thomson Reuters, but then also it has been offered me the opportunity to work on acquisitions in over 10 countries. I've launched products in over three continents, and I've been part of ongoing digital transformation of small Thomson Reuters businesses and print publishing entities, I think for about a decade now. And in 2011, probably one of my favorite things just before I left Thomson Reuters was I was part of the acquisition team for a practical law company, which I know is is here in the US. It started in London in the UK and is, I think, a very interesting evolution of legal publishing and really signals some of the changes that we're seeing in the way law is practiced and legal information is delivered and and the role of legal technology to some degree that is shaping that change. You touched on this earlier, but um, I'm sure through the course of your career, you've seen just tremendous change and evolution in legal technology. And certainly legal technology or just technology in general has become so ubiquitous. So if you could talk a little bit about your observations and what you've seen and what do you foresee for the future? Well, I'm not sure I can say anything original on this. So certainly there's been a lot written and uh, expounded on this particular topic for probably the last decade. I guess as an insider in the legal publishing and legal technology space, I don't know that legal technology is in itself. It certainly has disrupted and created some new opportunities. I don't know that it it is having the transformative shift that many predict. And, and part of that, I guess, is that we're looking at things on probably too short a time frame. A decade ago, it was, you know, that automation was going to completely change the way law was practiced and certainly the way that the legal workflows operated. And that has happened. We have things like e-discovery particularly changing. And But I think for the most part, what it has done is it has enabled lawyers to be more productive. It has created a lot more space for lawyers to focus on the practice of law and doing law more effectively and efficiently. Then we have the commoditization effect. So you have really interesting companies like LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer who are using technology to commoditize, consumerize, however you want to see it, uh, certain aspects of what was a legal service. Those are really interesting. And, you know, I would argue that the disruption is, in effect, causing the profession to reflect a little bit. But overall, I think it's too soon to call to say what direction we're going in. Now we're facing, you know, the role of artificial intelligence as well. And again, there's a lot of discussion and projecting and forecasting of how this is going to shift. And and I think probably the most immediate and likely outcome is that it's going to have a similar effect that we saw with automation. It is going to remove certain or make certain activities that are low level or standardized or can be standardized 
more effective and more productive. And so the practice of law becomes more efficient and more focused on the, you know, the framing of the problem. There's more, there's more information readily and more quickly available to frame solutions to problems. Right. So, you know, law students have access to these, these very powerful tools now, you know, dissimilar to the way that it was and the way that legal research was done back in the day. Now we have access, you know, to Westlaw, to Lexis and all of these different tools coming into law school. How important is it, uh, do you think, that students gain uh, knowledge and experience with these tools so that they're ready to use them once they get out into practice? I think, first of all, I mean, both Westlaw and Lexis have changed dramatically in the last 10 years. They both have kind of new versions or incarnations of themselves, which reflect how much technology has involved, uh, the deeper search, uh, better, more accurate, and more intuitive natural language search, uh, the volume of content that they both house under those umbrellas of Westlaw Next and, and Lexus Advances is also much increased. So I would say I don't know how, as a, someone who did research largely in a paper environment at law school, I don't know how you can study law or, well, perhaps practice law is, uh, is a different scenario, but I don't know that you can't study law without knowing how to use those tools effectively. I think there must have tools. But the great thing is that they're, they're so intuitive and so easy to use that familiarizing yourself with them is relatively, I would say, trivial now compared to what it was five, ten years ago before the current versions. I'm wondering if you've seen any trend among law schools introducing a technology and the law course that really focuses on the importance of utilizing technology in the legal field. Well, I think we have um, a lot of interesting inroads made in that space, which are not really specifically around research, but certainly in thinking about legal information as data and the analytics you can derive from that data. And the Stanford Law School has certainly some very interesting programs around and incubators coming out of that program. Things like Ravel Law, which I think is a hugely exciting platform around legal technology. Uh, You have the introduction of concepts like design thinking into how you solve problems and build products for lawyers. And I think this shows that, you know, the world of law is not this walled garden that it perhaps once was. There is the opportunity here to really create something that's very interesting and unique in the future using technology and different ways of thinking. Kelly, can you explain to us a little bit about how you found yourself serving as the executive director of Continuing Education of the Bar and what kind of programs and services uh, that you guys offer to practicing attorneys and law students? CEB is a program of the University of California, and it has been around since 1947. It was founded with the intention of helping returning World War II veterans back into practice. And and this is the distinction between the study of law and the continuing education of law, you know, improving the practice of law through ongoing professional development. And this is where CEB started. It continues in that trend where we publish over 150 
practical guides each year. We produce programs to help lawyers. California is, an, is a mandatory compliance state, so every three years, every attorney in California must have 25 hours of compliance credits in order to continue. And so we offer those programs, but we also look at what are the need, emerging needs of young attorneys. And what we hear repeatedly is that legal writing skills, running a small law practice, so basic business skills, and preparing for the world of work and communication skills, business development skills, all of those things are things that young lawyers tell us that are becoming a bigger part of their day-to-day life. And so we're trying to think of shape what that continuing education needs to look like beyond the substantive areas and the compliance elements of law and how we can offer practical guidance for young attorneys who have not grown up in a print world, who are very used to consuming information in a digital way, what that will look like for a legal education and continuing education provider like ourselves. I'm curious, what does CEB offer for law students? We have a great deal, in fact. So we work very closely, since we're part of the University of California, we work very closely with the University of California law schools. And so all professors of University of California law schools, and therefore by extension, the students receive CEB products and access to our guides. You receive also students receive free programs and conferences. As a student of a California university, you can attend one of our programs for free. You can access the on-demand programs online for free. You can get deep discounts on our popular practice guides, and we cover a range of practice areas. And when you get out of law school, which is probably where it becomes most relevant and the reality of the world is is hitting, you can access our digital libraries for the first year for free. And then after that, it's significantly discounted, like 50% to 70% discounted on through your first five years of practice. Just recently, we have begun sponsoring for University of California Law Schools, a legal writing and research award. And that's uh, $5,000 that we award to students who display exceptional skills in writing and research. And this is really recognizing, I think, to this earlier question about how important is Westlaw or LexisNexis or legal research tools to the study of law. And I think being able to access the relevant information in the most efficient way to be able to analyze and make sense of that information in order to frame solutions to legal problems is an essential part of the practice of a a young lawyer. And it takes a few years out of practice to really learn and hone those skills. And so we're trying to create a support network for young lawyers to be able to do that as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Right. So going off of that and all of the CLE courses that you guys are offering, how important is it for attorneys to continue learning throughout their career. We know that the legal profession, the medical profession, uh, and several others have these requirements for continued learning. Is there anything specific to the practice of law that you see that makes these CLE classes beneficial? I'm not sure it's particular to the legal profession, I think. Continued learning as an essential part of the world that we live in, 
more so now. And the range of information that we need to absorb and assimilate is increasing exponentially. And so, you know, with a profession that is undoubtedly changing, it is undoubtedly changing. I think my remarks earlier were not that I don't think that technology is not having a disruptive effect and it's not going to change the profession or deregulation in some jurisdictions, just that that rate of change has been so hotly anticipated to be very swift. And what we're seeing is that it's a lot slower. But the world around the profession and law does not exist in a vacuum. It's part part of a broader society. And in fact, it, it shapes society and, and the individuals in it. So I, I think none of us can sit by and not be committed to a lifetime of learning. And that's actually one of the things that drew me to this role in CEB is that CEB sits at the intersection of law, education, and public service because we are a nonprofit and we are providing what is typically very expensive information and resources at a very affordable and in some cases for free to the most challenged parts of the market that we serve. And so this is a great opportunity to encourage everyone and to give everyone the opportunity for this continued learning and development that is essential to survival, I think, in the world that we live in. Well, it's clear that you offer a tremendous service for attorneys in California and also terrific opportunity for law students in California. But generally, for law students who are outside of California, what type of advice would you offer to law students in terms of networking, in terms of a willingness to learn beyond their doctrinal classes during their law school years so that they can really hit the ground running when they venture out into the real world? I should have qualified one of the on-demand library of programs is available outside of California to students outside of California as well. And that is not only jurisdiction specific. There is course, There are courses on ethics, um, bias, some courses around just how to start your own law practice. And, and so those are really, I think, useful for particularly people now entering the profession and available for free. Generally, I would say if you're starting out now, I spend a lot of my time talking to young lawyers in the first five years of practice because they are a very key component that I need to take on board as we shape our digital future and how we deliver information to them. And what I'm struck by is that the networking is only really starting, you know, maybe year two of being out in the world of work. And you really do need to start to build your networks much earlier before you even enter the profession. And I think conferences are great. There's some a wealth of national conferences. There's a number of legal networking sites. And I think, you know, identifying sponsors and mentors is really important. So people who have similar career paths that you think you might want to follow and finding ways to engage with them and to seek out their mentorship is really important where you are starting to define and lay down the future for, for where you want to take your career. Great tips. Great tips. Yeah, Kelly, I'm curious, just as a follow-up question, you guys are in um, based out of the San Francisco Bay Area then, is that correct? 
Okay, great. Do you guys partner or if not partner, is there any sort of relationship directly between you guys and the area law schools there? I think uh, UC Hastings is down there, Golden Gate, UC Berkeley, of course, UC Davis a little bit up the way. Uh, Do you see students that tend to get involved with CEB at a younger age when they're in law school, or are there opportunities for law students in the Bay Area to get involved with what you do? There is some limited opportunity right now. We do, uh, as I said, we have the Legal Research and Writing Award, and that you know, so we go onto campuses to make sure that people are aware of this award and to, to provide the award. We do some limited student fairs currently now, but next year we will be launching a student rep program. And this is really a way for us to outreach and to connect more directly and meaningfully with students. That's partly for us to create that connection to understand what the needs are, but I think it will offer a great opportunity for cross-networking with students as well via CEB. So we become a, a bit of a hub for students to start to see. And, you know, we have also great links into public interest law. And next year, in fact, we're planning to put on, in conjunction with the University of California Office of the President and the law schools, the first public law conference for University of California. And so that is a great pathway for students to connect with CEB and then connect with people who have careers currently in that area. All right, great. Hey, one last question for our listeners who want to follow up. How can they reach out and connect with you? If you go to our website, ceb.com, there is a email address on there that you can, I think it's called something like Ask Kelly. And that is a great way for people to ask questions, to connect with CEB or me directly. Well, hey, thank you, Kelly, again so much for joining us uh, on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your time and for taking the time to chat. It was fun. It was a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed another episode of our podcast. We encourage you to subscribe to the ABA Law Student Podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode and take a moment to rate and review us as well. You can also reach us on Twitter at ABALSD using the hashtag Law Student Podcast. We'd love to hear what's on your mind. I'm Chris Morgan, and thank you for listening to the ABA Law Student Podcast here on Legal Talk Network. And I'm Sandy Gallant-Jones. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, take care. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. Remember, U.S. law students at ABA-accredited schools can join the ABA for free. Join now at AmericanBar.org forward slash law student. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.